I think what makes cinema to me, uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. At first, you may be. At first, you may you may find that I am affected by this film. The camera work is amazing. The actors are terrific. Great editing and that sort of thing. But after a certain amount of time, after you get enough of that, like um, for example, um, shoot the piano player, mm -hmm. uh, Truffaut. Uh, I thought that was the best. But after a while, I realized it's Jules and Jim. <laughs> it's got more depth. You can watch it repeatedly, and you can watch it different times in your life. And the film's the same. You change. Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Pretty much the films of Hitchcock in terms of, like, as I say, Psycho, for example. I was there the third night, midnight show at the DeMille Theater. Really? Midnight show? Yeah. <laughs> it was a circus. Talk about a theme ride. <laughs> a theme park. This place <laughs> was it. wild. The place was going crazy. Over the years, I watched the film over and over, and I'm really obsessed with it. But it's not... The, the the shower scene, it's not killing a Martin Balsam, it's not. It's the scenes with the actors and how he's framed them and how they play off each other. And it's the mood and tone uh, of the picture along with the music, of course. And it's the framing, the compositions, which have almost a kind of uh, an aesthetic quality, freaky kind of quality to it. Um, and so, in a way, I've enjoyed that picture and I still do because of the things that it's not famous for. Welcome, everybody, to episode 126 of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about some of the biggest cinematic bombs, as well as some of the biggest critical failures. Brad, it's November. We got our monocles on. We're being all pretentious and fancy. Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. Yeah, we're talking about a Martin Scorsese film. I'm kind of excited. I am very excited. So what's the theme of this month? We, we kind of did spooky season. We did a little uh, break in between of themes, talked about Tomorrowland. But in the month of November, we we kind of found four films with some commonality. What is that? Yeah, so so the four films we're talking about are all prestige films. And we define that as films that are obviously positive with the critics and won multiple Academy Awards. Hmm. And the film we are talking about tonight is Hugo which uh, was uh, was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won five. It yeah. was the most nominated film of 2011. Yeah, so November's kind of special. Uh, if, if you are big into theatrical releases, this is the month I think you start to see what you would consider sort of the Oscar push or Oscar contenders. Yes. Yep. Of course, yep. So what will happen is studios sometimes – will release a film on limited release, maybe 800,000 screens. And between now and the end of the end of the year, that'll go into rotation. Uh, because in order to qualify for the Academy Awards, and I'm, I'm sure it's different now with streaming, et cetera, but I still think the rule is it has to play theatrically 
in the year, right? I believe you are correct. I'm not sure if they've changed that. I know some of the stuff that Netflix has wanted to be considered for, um, I think, Roma. They actually had to play it in theaters for it to be considered. So I think that rule still holds. Okay. Yeah. So you, you will typically hear the term Oscar bait sometimes for films that will come out in the last couple of months of the year. So we, we just thought it would be fun. And, and just like, uh, the, <laughs> I guess the challenge of October when we sat down to say, Hey, let's try and find horror movie sequels that bombed that that was a pretty tough task. This one wasn't exactly easy either because we tried to find movies that had multiple Academy award wins and didn't bomb at the box office. And there's, there's only a handful, right? Yeah. Uh, usually when you're nominated, say for the film that we're doing tonight, 11 times, that gives the kind of the Oscar push, if you will, at the box office. And mm-hmm. you kind of get a second run of uh, box office totals. But um, for these, it just didn't happen. Or say for the film we're doing tonight, the budget was gigantic and it needed to make a whole bunch of money back. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a short list. So I don't know if we'll be able to do this, uh, say next year, but it was fun to, to kind of change our normal pacing, move away from some of the films we do. Yes. I think Highlander is a perfect movie, but Highlander (laughs) is not a prestige film. (laughs) You better give me that fucking Academy award. Um, I do have but, a question. You know, I, I do yeah. have a question for you. Um, and and I kind of wanted to start here. So this whole month, we're going to be talking about films that critically rate very high, uh, that didn't do well at the box office. But the thing that they have in common is the Academy Awards. So here's my question for you. Does the Academy Awards in 2022, or let's say 2023, because that's, you know, they're right around the corner, right? So does the Academy Awards ceremony hold any weight for the film enthusiasts in 2023, especially after the infamous Oscar slap? I think it does. I don't know if the ceremony, I, I, I don't care about the ceremony. I do care about nominations. I do care about what films that they're, um, the, the Academy is nominating. Um, especially um, best picture. Like I don't always agree with what wins best picture, but I do like to have that 10 of like, okay, here's the 10 films. At least I want to see, to see if I agree that these are the best 10 films of the year. Obviously I never do. Um, And then the actor ones and stuff like that. And, and I think some of the technical stuff is cool to see some of those guys get recognition. Uh, But the ceremony, I, I, I don't care for. I think it's way too long. It is cool to see, you know, guys like, uh, say, Brad Pitt or somebody get up there and, and give a speech. Um, but those moments are too few and far between for me. Um, say for the director that we're talking about tonight, when Scorsese finally won his Oscar, like that was a big moment for me as as someone who loves his films. But those moments again are becoming fewer and fewer because I, I don't know if. Like our movie stars are dying out. I don't know if our directors are guys that you just kind of know by one name. Tarantino, Scorsese, um, you know, Kubrick, Spielberg. Like all those guys, were, you just know them by one name. Um, I don't know if those guys are going to be around much longer. And I don't, I don't know. I, I lament, say, 
the early nineties to maybe the aughts, um, when I really cared about what the Academy said. Um, but now, now I just see it as a bunch of old men that are out of touch. Okay. I, I really, I mean, there was a time when I was super excited about the Academy Awards to the point that you would have people over, sit down, watch the ceremony, et cetera. I think the internet has taken a little bit of the excitement away from that. So especially growing up, I mean, the Academy Awards and, and television specifically, events like this, even variety shows and um, special guest appearances, it, it was a way to kind of see the movie stars outside of their element, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sort of get a glimpse into them as people. Uh, and I And I also thought the Academy Awards really did a good job of highlighting films that maybe the average moviegoer didn't pay attention to or didn't see. But if somebody came out and said, hey, this thing is really good for its screenplay or the direction here is fantastic um, or this performance in this film will knock your socks off, then it would attract a few more people to the movie theaters. But I really think the internet, I, I think two things, the internet uh, has taken some of the glamour away from the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, and, and film criticism in itself, film criticism itself. It's it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not as old as I am, but there was a time when, you know, you found out all about movies from books, magazines, little snippets on television. It, it wasn't as accessible. It was on the internet. Right. Uh, and the Academy Awards was, was one of those channels where you could get that. So I, I just think it's lost some of its glamour and um, I don't know, it's mystique. The other thing is I, I really do think the Oscar slap specifically highlights a problem with the Academy Awards and it really rings true sort of the hollowness and the pomp and circumstance and the shallowness of these creatives and entertainers. Uh, I, I mean, the Oscar slap in and of itself, I think years will go by in, in from a pop culture study and perspective. People will look at that and kind of go, wow, that's that's a really interesting take on society mm-hmm. and how that played out and where people fell on the side of Chris Rock or, or Will Smith and who agreed with who. I, I, I think it's a really interesting social study of how that played out. But more than anything, I think it does highlight how, um, I don't know, shallow (laughs) and uh, I'm trying to find the right word for it, like inauthentic and and just uh, just how how I I don't know that industry. it, It baffles me that they can be so concerned with social messaging and so concerned with all of these topics and everything else. But those things um, in and of itself and, and being able to hold yourself in such a way in public, it doesn't pertain to them and there's no consequences for what they yep. do. Yeah. And in five to 10 years, maybe Will Smith is, is back to being an actor and we all have moved on and don't talk about it anymore. I hope not. Yeah. But if, but, if you and I assaulted somebody in public, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to get out from under it that easy. No, no. Um, but these people also play characters and we're used to them playing characters. So I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think sometimes people 
keep these people as like fake people because they see them. Oh, Will Smith, he played Ali. He did. He was the main of black. He was, uh, yeah. did all this stuff and whatever. Um, I mean, the, the slap didn't bother me as much as say like crash winning, um, at the, <laughs> at the, uh, what was it? 2006 Academy Awards. Yeah. yeah. It, it, was- it doesn't bother me. I, I actually find it quite, quite just extremely interesting because I do think it is just a, an, interesting reflection of how divided society is. And just to continue even today, read all the entire fallout of what happened and how people talk about it and how to treat it. Um, it, I guess if anything, it, it does kind of reflect on, um, people. I don't know. It, it's just a different time period And 2022 is a crazy year in and of itself. And so I guess you really shouldn't be surprised for an incident like that to happen. But, you know, and then he gets a standing ovation when he wins, which is like, nuts that's to the me. Other yeah, thing. Um, that how that all played out. But to me, it it now feels like an episode out of like a reality television show, something you'd find on MTV mm-hmm. versus the prestige and, and glamour of what the Oscars may have had. But that's not the only year that, you know, controversies ever happened. I mean, just think about um, all of the things that happened in the 70s with the protests of the war. Um, how people, you know, Native Americans were treated. John and, Wayne, yes. Yeah, and John, I mean, all of this stuff. So uh, it is one incident in a very long history of incidents. Uh, so it, I guess it's not surprising, but it is a constant reminder that, you know, you don't hear about these things going down at Plumber of the, of the year, right? But obviously, I, I'm sure they have better. There's some after, shit going down at that. There's probably yeah. better after party stories at the plumber yeah. um, association. You see people going around saying, "Hey, my pipes need cleaning." <laughs> I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought this was interesting. So, if you think about the Academy Award, I, I mean, my goodness, there are so many. I don't know award shows, Critics' Choice, People's Choice, the Golden Globes, etc. I, I always thought this was interesting. BAFTA take, isn't BAFTA. Yep, British, the yeah. British one. You've got the Academy Award for Best Picture, and I, I thought it was kind of interesting to look at that versus the People Choice Award for Best Picture. Now, they do it a little bit different. Sometimes they award a picture, but in the past, they might award like Best Dramatic Picture, Best Action, mm. Best best Comedy. Yeah. But in 2021, when CODA, um, or I, I should say this year, CODA won for the Academy Award for Best Picture, right, mm-hmm. at this year's Oscars. The People's Choice Award for Best Picture went to Black Widow. So there you go, because, you know, the audience is voting. Yeah. Um, If you remember when The Shape of Water won that year, Avengers Infinity War won the People's Choice Award. Um, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, very popular franchise, very popular film. Um, It did win in the People's Choice Award uh, the favorite dramatic film, but also Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl one as well. Okay. And I looked this one up because I thought you would like it, Brad. So probably 1990, 1990 which is the year that gives you fits. Mm-hmm. Um, Dances with Wolves, rightly so, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. <clears throat> and do you know what the People's Choice Award for Best Dramatic Film was? I mean, I'm- I was going to say Goodfellas, but I don't think it was it. So what was it? Ghost, the <clears throat> Patrick Swayze Demi Moore. It didn't Whoopi Goldberg did win an Academy for Best Supporting Actress. on. Yeah, that? she won for Best Supporting that year. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So obviously a disconnect from the masses um, versus uh, the Academy. Mm-hmm. And, and those, 
and and just keep in mind these awards that are handed out the academy awards it's basically the peer groups who are voting for those pictures and those um uh those actors actresses technicians etc right yep yep okay well tonight we're going to talk about 2011's martin scorsese hugo yeah it's one of the films that you talked about was nominated uh quite a few times for an academy award in various uh, categories. However, it ended up bombing at the box office. So this is a case where critics loved it. Uh, there wasn't enough of a viewership to go out and see it in order to um, make a profit. So yes, take us back, Brad, to 2011 when Hugo was released. And, and let's talk about how this did. Yeah, so released November 23rd, 2011, so right in your Oscar season there with a reported budget of $170 million. Total box office gross domestically was 73 and some change, internationally 111, which gives us about roughly $185 million. Choi, the studio wrote off a net loss of $100 million on this film. Oh, goodness. It's another Sounds like a Disney we- film. Yeah, where we're talking about <laughs> triple-digit losses. Jeez. Boy, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? I would love to just write off $100 million and be able to go and do whatever it is I want to do. Another, yeah. Another yeah. movie, yeah. Um, <clears throat> opening weekend. This is tragic. Ooh. Opening weekend, it opens fifth at the box office with $15 million. Ouch. $15 million. Did, did, you, did you see this opening weekend? I did. I okay, did. me too. I, uh I saw this the Black Friday. Okay. I remember exactly. I was home, went to go see it, like 12 o'clock. Um, so it gets beat out by, this is why we cannot have nice things. Uh, the Twilight Saga, Breaking Ugh. Dawn, oh Part 1. Jesus. <laughs> made $61 million that weekend. The Muppets, <laughs> which isn't bad. That's a good one. Ha- Happy Feet 2, Arthur Christmas, and then Hugo. And then there's Jack and Jill, Immortals, Puss in Boots, Tower Heist, The Descendants. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. Again, prestige films. We assume this is going to be very high, and it is. It's a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics, 78% with the audience. So the audience, a little bit lower on this than the critics. 78 is good for an audience score, though. It, it is for I feel like all the- a two hour and 10 minute fantasy film that takes place in a train station. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. A, a lot of the films we talk about that bomb, you, you get sort of a divisive audience mm-hmm. and, and 60% seems pretty good. You get into that 70, 80 territory. I think you're, I think you are talking about um, a large group of people who, who yeah. really would kind of talk hey, about yeah, this. And, people and like this movie. Yeah. I mean, that's yep. yeah. Um, oh boy, Troy. Oh boy. I think we might have a Christian movie on our hands here, buddy. Oh, no. <sighs> I know. What have we done? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, movie Guide. Uh, if you're not aware, Movie Guide is a website that reviews films, not for their content or not for their quality, but for their contents. And Troy, we have a plus one on our hands. A plus one? Plus one. Wow. I think, again, I think we have a Christian movie on our hands. Okay, this is uh, you're gonna have to take a little walk with me here. All right, strong Christian worldview. Ooh, not a pagan worldview. <laughs> oh, that's Christian <laughs> presenting the teleological intellectual design arguments 
in an imaginative story where requests for prayer, crucifixes above the bed of George Milieu's, as well as prominent crosses, statues of angels, monks, and bishops, battles between heaven and hell. What? And Hugo, whoa, whoa, hold on, time out. There was a battle between heaven and hell. I, I must have fallen asleep or something because I don't remember heaven and hell okay. battling in this movie. Um, and Hugo discerns that everything is designed with a purpose. So each person must be designed with a purpose. And so you need to find your purpose in the design world with very strong moral elements, extolling kindness, finding one's purpose and gifts in life, mm-hmm. forgiveness and honoring the past. Yet God is implicit and not illicit. God damn. Wow. And there are pagan stories. Of I like, I like how you, you read the sentence, God is implicit and not illicit. And then you yeah. cuss right after that. <laughs> I know, but these, okay. um, Milius movies such as Greek and Middle Eastern mythology, no foul language. Violence includes boy runs away from train station guard who runs into people as he chases the boy. True, you know. true. Causing bodily harm. Uh, the guards uh, chases boy. Two slightly scary dream sequences. A runaway train crashes into a train station in one dream sequence. Two characters. I'm sorry. That's where I got. Uh, cl- a boy is a boy is twice threatened with being run over by a train. And a fireball is seen approaching one man. And it's said he had died from this. A body is found in the river, but nothing gruesome shown. And light comical violence in the film shown and during filming of movie scenes. No I'm sex. telling you, the, this website needs somebody to work on the grammar. It, it, dude, I trust me. Every time yeah. I try to read it, I'm like, oh, uh, no sex. But young teenagers hold hands and girl gives boy a kiss on the cheek. No nudity. Protagonist uncle shows up drunk after boy's father dies. And his drunkenness is mentioned later. Mm-hmm. Brief smoking. And boy steals mechanical parts from a shop owner, but owner makes him pay, works to pay off his crimes after he's caught. Orphan boy abandoned by his only relative keeps it that a secret out of fear of being sent to an orphanage and steals food to survive. Guard threatens children with sending them to an orphanage. Uh, guard exaggerates crimes of an orphan when he is on the phone, lying and some brief discussion about whether a minor a minor character's pregnant wife is carrying his baby. Mm, yep. But plus a, one, Troy. It's a running plus joke one because there. it's plus one because it's strong Christian worldview. Okay. Okay. Uh, no no okay. pagan worldviews, right? No pagan worldviews. So yeah. it's plus one. Films yeah. you could have seen November of 2011. We have films such as Tower Heist, a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Shout out to Jose. I'm sure he loves that because it's in 3D. Well, uh, J. Edgar, and it's good. <laughs> huh? it is, it's funny. Yes. Uh, J. Edgar, Arthur Christmas, Immortals, Jack and Jill, Melancholia, uh, The Descendants, Happy Feet 2, and Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 1, making $828 million. Almost a billion dollars. Almost a billion dollars. Again, that's why we cannot have... Nice things. Have you seen any of the Twilight films? I have not. Yeah. I think I saw the first one. I tapped out. That was it. Yeah. Yep. I'm sorry. Not for me. 
Oh, on to you, sir. Oh, okay. Well, hey, look, if we're going to talk about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, we got to start with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, we do. So, Brad, uh, I'm just going to ask you straight out. I'm not going to sit here and read through his, his filmography. I think if you love movies, you you might have run across a Martin Scorsese film at some point in your life. And, and many, many times we have talked about him as a director and the year 1990 specifically. <laughs> But the question I have for you, the thing I'm super curious about is if you had to pick the top three mm-hmm. and I'm not even going to ask you to rank them. Just tell me what your th- you consider the three best Martin Scorsese films. Now, he's he's one best director. The Departed. Yep. For The Departed. OK, Um but I'm I'm really curious if you had to pick the three. If you said these are the three you have to watch of his, what would they be? Okay, I'm just going off the cuff. Okay, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. Oh, okay, all right. I'm gonna Wolf go. Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed are in there too, and so is no, no. Shutter Island. You got it. Three. Okay. That's it. Okay. Shutter Those Island. are my three. Okay, that's up there. Uh, not King of Comedy. I do like King of Comedy. I mean, I, I, does he have a bad film? Um, uh, let's see. I don't think so. What would you? No, I, I've, I've liked everything that I've seen of his. And I think I've seen all of them. Cause he, even, even the ones that boxcar Bertha or whatever his yeah. suited film. Yeah. It's, I mean, New York, New York, New York, New York. I like, yeah. Uh, here's my three, which you're going to hear some of the same. It would be Raging Bull, Mm -hmm. 1980, right? Goodfellas, 1990 would be in there. And my third one would be Hugo. That would make my top three. Okay. All right, done. Episode over. (laughs) It would. So you can can already tell where I'm going to land on this one. Uh, But yeah, as a director, um, a creative, he's pretty unmatched, especially when you think about him as a producer, uh, and I, I don't know if you ever saw this. I remember getting on, um, I think it was Laserdisc at one point, but there was this, um, I don't know, documentary where Martin Scorsese was just kind of talking about the history of film mm-hmm. and going through these different stages. I, I find that super fascinating. And if you ever want to get a taste of Martin Scorsese in terms of a film junkie, you got you to gotta seek out that documentary. It's fantastic. Yeah, I love hearing amazing directors talk about film. I'm currently reading Tarantino's book um, and just the way they speak about film and, and critically it's, it's at a whole other level. You're like, I I don't know anything. These guys have forgotten more about film than I will ever know. It's amazing. (laughs) Well, and and even when he makes comments, I I mean, well, let me ask you this. So he's come under fire recently for his comments about the Marvel films. Do you think Mm -hmm. they're valid? They are valid. I I understand. I, I, Anytime you take a quote and then you take it out of context, it, it always sounds way worse than it really is. But I understand exactly what he's saying. And I also like Spielberg has come against these like stuff like this all the time where it's it, it hurts film. And I get it. These guys love cinema. They they love people going to the theater. And I think that's eroding. And I, I hate it just as much as they do. Okay. Uh, I agree. I I think if you read his interviews in full context, you'll actually see where he's coming from. 
And I do think uh, that if you look at all of these superhero films and and just the franchises, et cetera, it's, (laughs) I don't know. It it makes me really wish for even decades like the 90s. I mean, some people will Mm -hmm. say the 70s were probably the greatest decades of film ever. But I would even take the independent stuff of the 90s um, over even what we see today in terms of big blockbusters, because they just feel empty. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, you know, we don't get the, we don't get as much of that middle tier anymore. Yeah. It's either big budget now or very independent. Um, and you have studios like a 24 that put out, you know, very uh, polished independent films, but I, I, I miss, just going to the theater and seeing a random, this movie costs $35 million and it's just some guy wrote it, directed it, edited it, you know, all that stuff. Um, yeah. Cause, cause now it's big business and everything needs to make a billion dollars and you're not going to make a billion dollars on some of these movies. Um, I always go back to that interview um, that came out probably about two or three months ago with Matt Damon. Yeah. When he talks about he the DVD market, about DVD sales and how, you know, you would make so much money on the back end that you could be a little bit more risky um, with what you were making. And now that risk is gone and everyone's so risk averse that you just can't miss. Um, even Disney feels it sometimes. We talked about it there for a while. I mean, they wrote off like three of the biggest films of all time. It was like half a billion dollars. Um, and there's obviously studios that can't do that. Um yeah, man, it's uh, film is weird. <laughs> it is. We're, we're in a weird place. Weird. I, I do miss that. I feel like I, even. But everything is also cyclical. So I think at some point in time, it comes back. I, I look the 60s. Yes, was a was a great decade for films. But the 70s kicked its ass. Yeah. The 80s was good and had had its moments. Then the 90s came around and like all these new directors come about. You know, your P.T. Anderson's, your your Quentin Tarantino's, your. Kevin Smith's, um, but you know, these guys that like change the way you think about film um, for my generation and, you know, the two thousands brought on some stuff. And so maybe now we're just in a little bit of a lull and, and I think here soon, maybe something changes and we get the next wave of filmmakers. I hope so. You, um, do you think we'll ever see another Martin Scorsese? I, <laughs> That's hard, man. It's like, will we ever see a uh, Kira Kurosawa? Like, probably not. I mean, it's like, will we ever see another Michael Jordan? Probably not. It's, it's Scorsese is a once in a generation guy. So is, is probably he a, not. Is he a once in a, um, not even a lifetime, but think, think about, you had said at one point, Akira Kurosawa for you was like the greatest director ever. Just by the breath and, yes. and just the longevity of what he, yes, yes. Scorsese's up there too. So if you look at the landscape of directors and just specific to Martin Scorsese, I, I think he gets pigeonholed sometimes as sort of like this. Um, he's very good at making these poetic, angry, middle-aged white guy gangster mm-hmm. dramas, mm-hmm. which yeah. I, is unfair because you look at a movie like Hugo, um, was it Kundan? Um, Kundan, yep. Yep. Uh, there's, there's some depth there across the board. 
But is there ever get if you think about is there ever a, a, a struggling white guy than uh, the last temptation of Christ? Oh yeah, hey, there you <laughs> um, but he, think about directors that are out there right now. Is anybody even coming close or just chipping away at uh, the breadth and even the talent that Scorsese has as a director? <sighs> I don't think so. Okay, but. I mean, you could argue Scorsese has the greatest film of the 70s, the greatest film of the 80s, and the greatest film of the 90s. You could. You could. In terms of modern directors, mm-hmm. you could easily uh, make that claim, and I think you could support it. Yeah, of yeah. course. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you ever have another director like that. And, I mean, dude, he put out The Irishman in 2020, uh, 2019. He's got another thing coming. His first films were the late 60s, I believe. I think Who's Knocking at Your Door is mm-hmm. like 67. So he's going on almost like 60 years, man. Like you just don't see guys like that anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, let, let's talk about the screenplay. So this film was written by John Logan. It's based on the book entitled The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick. John Logan has a really interesting background. So when you look at his filmography, like one film just popped out in the 90s, 1999's Bats with Lou Diamond Phillips. Oh, God. Yeah, so he did that one. But but listen to this, okay? Yeah, Gladiator in 2000. He's done a Star Trek movie, Star Trek Nemesis, 2002. Did a Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, 2003. Um, a couple of James Bond films, Skyfall and Spectra. Uh, Alien Covenant. And he's still writing screenplays today. He just had something come out this year uh, for streaming service. Uh, They, Them came out in 2022. I think that's the Kevin Bacon thriller um, sort of horror film. Yeah, conversion camp film. Yeah, but I mean, that is one heck of a resume in terms of screenplays. I mean, the guy's written some some bangers. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with Martin Scorsese before. He did The Aviator. Yeah. So they've worked together before. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting too, if you go through, there's a lot of producers on here, but one producer's name sticks out and this was his first producing credit, but we get uh, none other than Johnny Depp as a producer on here. Yeah. Here's where the caliber of talent I think really takes off behind the camera. Let's talk about cinematography, Robert Richardson. Now here's the thing. This guy I'm just going to read this first list. Oscar nominee for best achievement in cinematography. So these were the films he was nominated. He did not win. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, <laughs> Inglorious Bastards. Man, he he's those are some heavy ones, right? Mr. Yep. Tarantino. Snow Falling on Cedars in 2000. Born on the 4th of July in 1990. And Platoon in 1986, right? Those are for films he did not win. He did. Now, here's the ones that he won. Okay. So Oscar winner for best achievement in cinematography, Hugo in 2011, The Aviator in 2004, and JFK in 1991. Wow. That's a a career, man. Yeah. So he hooks up with Tarantino, Oliver Stone, or Martin Scorsese. He's going to take home some gold, right? Yeah, that's... uh... I think that says a lot about you. If the caliber of director is say what you will about stone, but Tarantino Scorsese, um, even Ben Affleck uses him sometimes. So, yeah. I mean, those are guys are, are 
tip top on on the director list and that they're picking you to shoot their film it says a lot about you more than what the academy the academy awards are great but show me the directors that want to work with you and if they're the best of the best that says everything you need to know yeah and and say what you will all of those films are gorgeous to look at Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you like them or not i still would say they are just gorgeous to look at hateful eight's not my favorite film but god damn does it look amazing yeah for a film that's supposed to be sort of a single room um majority of it takes place in a single room it looks fantastic yeah show me better snow (laughs) (laughs) true now not done we have the editor thelma schoonmaker (laughs) again listen to this list so these are uh the films that she was nominated didn't win for best achievement in editing. Most recently, the Irishman in 2019 Hugo in 2011 gangs of New York in 2002 Goodfellas in 1990 and Woodstock in 1970. Okay. So nominated didn't win. Here's the list <laughs> list of movies that she won an Oscar for best achievement in editing. The Departed in 2006, The Aviator in 2004, and Raging Bull in 1980. Yeah. Damn. It's impressive. That is, yeah. We got three wins is amazing. Yeah. Music by Howard Shore. Uh, He was an Oscar nominee for Best Original Score for Hugo. He was an Oscar winner for Best Original Score for two films. I thought this was interesting. The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King in 2003, and The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring in 2001. <laughs> he also won an Oscar for Best Music Original Song in Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King for the song Into the West. So Howard Shore is another huge contender. Uh, let's and talk. We've got like multiple Academy Award winners on, well, Scorsese's won one. The cinematographer was one, three editors, one, three, the guys doing the music as multiple. We're, we're batting pretty high here. Yeah. They, they brought the a team to work on everything behind the camera. And I'll say this. I think they brought the a team for everybody in front of the camera too. I'm just, I'm just going to put it out there. We're going to talk about some names here. And I think everybody is is pretty fantastic. One for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have, um, and I hope I say the first name correctly, Aza Butterfield mm-hmm. as Hugo Cabaret. Now, he got his start in a TV movie in 2006 called After Thomas. He's been in a lot of films that I think have had some popularity. One sticks out, and I wanted to ask you about this. Have you ever seen Son of Rambo from 2007? I've not. I've you, seen the box and I've seen it. You need to watch this film. It's okay. fantastic. So, uh if anybody's listening, go find Son of Rambo. Just watch the trailer to it on YouTube. You'll just fall in love with the trailer. You need to seek that film out. He was also Young Ben in The Wolfman in 2010, a film mm-hmm. that we talked about. Nanny McPhee returns in 2010. He did Hugo in 2011, and then he did another sort of big budget film, uh Ender's Game in 2013. Yep. So he's he Andrew Ender Wigan or whatever. Yep. He's still working today. I think this year he did a Netflix film called choose or die. I don't know if it's any good, but um, yeah, he, he's still out there. We have, I think another name that's pretty well known. Chloe Grace Moretz. Mm-hmm. She plays girl. Isabel. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, a lot of people know her from the kick-ass series as hit girl. What's interesting is when she 
I mean, she had been working since 2004. Hit Girl came out in 2010. Another film came out in 2010 that I think she got a little bit of publicity for, which was Let Me In. Oh, yes. Which Let the Right One In is a fantastic film. I think Let Me In might be one of the best remakes I've ever seen. And it might be better than the foreign original because there's not that cat scene in it. I think about that stupid cat scene and let me in <laughs> so many times. I'm like, have you ever seen a film? You're like, this film would be perfect. It would be perfect. And then all of a sudden the scene comes up. You're like, wow, you just shit the bed. And that's that scene for me. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Let me in. I love the original, mm-hmm. but this is a case where I think the American remakes better. A hundred percent. Agree. Yeah, she was also in uh, movie forty three, which seems like we talk about every episode. We need to. We need to review that. We'll have to do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you: Did you ever see a film? It's uh, only a few years old, but uh, I, I mean, she's the centerpiece of it. But it's Shadow in the Cloud from twenty twenty. I have heard about that movie and heard she's pretty good in it. I haven't seen it. Um, You need to check it out. I mean, it's a it's a unique film. Uh, it's one of those that I think is a little bit divisive and because of the story, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's her in a, um, like a, a world war two bomber or something like world that? war two bomber. She's, she's yeah. kind of trapped within the, the gunner gunnery part, the bubble underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a monster on the plane. So I now physics throw physics and logic mm-hmm. out the door, but her as a performer and as an actress, she is fantastic in it. Like you should see Shadow in the Cloud just because of her. Okay, she's so well, good in. It. I think we 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 would be remiss if we didn't mention she was in one of the greatest remakes of all time and probably one of the worst. That Carrie remake, not good. Yeah, not good at all. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, let's talk about Ben Kingsley as uh, that's George. Sir Ben Kingsley. Sorry, you, sir. Sir Ben Kingsley uh, as George Malay's Oscar nominee. Listen to this: Oscar nominee for best actor in a supporting role. In Bugsy, nineteen ninety one, Sexy Beast, which he's amazing in, yeah, Sexy Two Thousand, House of Sand and Fog in two thousand three, and he won a Best Actor uh, for Gandhi in nineteen eighty two. He pretty much won everything that year for Gandhi, I believe. I think he won a Golden Globe, um, yeah, a nobody, BAFTA, all that stuff. Yeah. Nobody was going to touch him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another surprising person. One of the greatest actors of our generation. I mean, one of the greatest actors of all time. Yeah. If you, I mean, think about him as the, uh, in, just even in the Marvel films, right. As the, uh, Mandarin mm-hmm. it, it's, it's sort of it, now, and let's not talk about the comic book source of it, but think of him within the Iron Man series and it's his throwaway part, but he is a scene stealer. Yep. I feel like every time Ben, his King's, parts in, in Iron Man three are just, fantastic they're amazing they're so amazing but yeah he's he is one of the best actors alive we also get sasha baron cohen as the station (laughs) inspector now (laughs) i i find his trajectory very interesting so from a comedic perspective he was doing ollie g from 98 to 2000 uh, on the 11 o'clock show he plays king julian in madagascar 2005 does voice acting Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby in 2006, Borat in 2006, which I think is when he really hits it big, <laughs> follows that up with Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which is kind of interesting. 
Bruno in 2009, Hugo in 2011. The next year does The Dictator in 2012. But that same year also does Les Mis, the film adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yep. Name another person that has that kind of a fascinating or interesting choice of films than uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. It's, it's, he's got a strange filmography. Uh, I, I, the Bruno stuff, or the, the Bruno, the uh, Borat stuff is, I think, comedy gold. Then he completely turns it into Bruno, and I don't really like Bruno that much. But, uh, yeah, he's even in the uh, Luca. He's yeah. Uncle Ugo in Luca, which I find pretty fascinating. But, yeah, his, uh, you know, some of his like non comedic stuff is really good too. That trial of the Chicago Seven, I think he's pretty decent in. I, I like Sasha Baron Cohen. I think he's a fascinating actor and way better than I think people give him credit for. Um, I think he's being one of those guys. Give it a few years, maybe another decade or so. Somebody's going to go back and and just kind of go, "Holy cow, uh, this guy is one of the best actors out there." Yeah, that Grimsby movie that he was in with Mark Strong. I really like that movie. I don't know if many people. <laughs> we we need it. to talk about that one because I I actually really like that film. Yeah, um, okay. he's fantastic in it. Uh, and we're not done. We get Christopher Lee as Monsieur Lebis. This is crazy. Two hundred eighty-eight acting credits according to IMDb. He passed away on June seventh, twenty fifteen, at the age of ninety-three. He had never been nominated for an Academy Award. However, in two thousand nine. He did win the Guinness Book World Record for oldest video game voice actor for the game Lego The Hobbit, the video game, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. He has been in some of the biggest franchises of all time, such as Star Wars, The Lord of the Rings, and Police Academy. That's right. He was in Police, <laughs> yes. Academy, Police Academy, Mission to Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2011, so this is how much this guy was working. So when Hugo comes out, you could also see him in Season of the Witch with Nicolas Cage, The Resident, The Wicker Tree. So, yeah. He was he all worked, over the place. man. He worked. He worked all the time. We get Ray Winstone as Uncle Claude. Now, we talked about Ray when we talked about Cats in 2019, which to this day, I can't believe we, we both said was not a bomb. Are you, hey, are you going to buy that 4K? Only if I can see the buttholes. Okay. Well, I'm <laughs> buying the 4K. <laughs> we get uh helen mccrory as mama jean um <laughs> what's funny is in 2011 when she was doing hugo she was also reprising a role narcissa malfoy in harry potter and the deathly hollows part two i gotta tell you brad for some of my comments that i made about harry potter and tomorrowland mm -hmm. i was really surprised nobody kind of wrote in about that stuff so that maybe they agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say all six listeners agree with uh, my comments on Harry Potter. Um, Emily Mortimer as Lisette. I I think I, I just <laughs> I'll just get it out there. She was in a she was in a little film called Notting Hill, 1999. Do you know what character she played? Notting Hill. Yeah. No. Okay. Her, I don't remember the name of her character was called perfect girl. And I, I think that pretty much summarizes, mm. uh, Emily Mortimer. She's, she's pretty awesome. Yes. Uh, scream three. I, I would assume you'd know her from there. The, uh -huh. the movie that made me 
recognize her or, or just kind of go, Oh wow. I really like Emily Mortimer was formula 51. Do you remember this film? It was a Ronnie, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Ronnie, you film yeah. with Samuel Jackson. Love that mm-hmm. one. And match point. I liked her in that one in 2005. You too. love formula 41. I do love formula 51. <laughs> I think meatloaf's in it too. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. We need to talk She's about that one. That trained Siberian mm-hmm. film which is directed by Brad Anderson. So I just had to bring it up. Yes. But. I'm a big, big Emily Mortimer fan. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, I think her playing a character called perfect girl is, is, uh, not, it, not far off, not far off. <laughs> Lastly, the, the only other person I'm going to bring up is Jude laws. Hugo's father, Oscar nominee for best actor in a leading role for cold mountain Oscar nominee for best actor in a supporting role for the talented Mr. Ripley. We have talked about Jude law when we talked about sky captain, the world of tomorrow from mm-hmm. 2004. Yep. Uh, I, I mean, I'm a fan of his, I don't know. I agree. Yeah. I, I liked you a lot, a lot. Um, his role in this one is more of like a cameo, but, uh, sure. We'll, we'll say it is. It. And when he's on screen, you, you pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, production and development, pretty quiet on this one. GK films acquired the screen rights to the invention of Hugo Cabret shortly after the book was published in 2007. Initially, Chris wedge was signed to direct the adaptation and John Logan was contracted to write the screenplay. Now, obviously Chris left Martin Scorsese comes on. Uh, Hugo was originally budgeted at a hundred million dollars, but ran over with a final budget between 156, 170, which is what you were talking about earlier. Yep. In February, 2012, Graham King summed up his experience of producing Hugo with quote, Let's just say that it hasn't been an easy few months for me. There's been a lot of Ambien involved. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, of note, this was Martin Scorsese's first 3D film, right? Yes. Uh, Real quick, let's talk about the historical accuracy. So this film centers on the Ben Kingsley character of George Millais. And what's surprising about this is that um, the film is really accurate. So for those who don't know, George Millais was a French illusionist actor and director. Uh, he was one of the earliest pioneers of cinema, um, specifically, let's say, the special effects department. Yeah. So I think most people would know um, his films, specifically A Trip to the Moon in 1902 and The Impossible Voyage in 1904. But A Trip to a Moon, I think everybody's seen this image with the rocket in the moon's eye. Yep. 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 And what what looks like cheese coming out of the... Yes, exactly. Yeah, yep. So the backstory and primary features of George Millier's life as depicted in the film are largely accurate. So that's one thing Scorsese was true to mm-hmm. was sort of these milestones that occurred, right? So uh, Millier's became interested in film after seeing a demonstration of the Lumiere brothers camera. He was a magician and toy maker. He experimented with automata. Is that how you say it? Automata? Yes, like automata. Automata. Okay. Yeah. He owned a theater, um, and he was forced into bankruptcy, and his film stock was reportedly melted down for its celluloid, and he eventually became a toy salesman at the Montparnasse station, and he was eventually awarded the Legion d'Honneur Medal after a period of terrible neglect. So all of that stuff is accurate. However, the film does not mention his two children, his brother, Gaston, who worked with him during his filmmaking career, or his first wife, right? So the film really concentrates or shows Melies married to 
Jean Dossi during their filmmaking period, which in reality they did not marry until 1925. So it's not totally accurate. Yeah. But those are the little differences. Uh, so when this came out, it was nominated for 11 Oscars, I think. Yep. It did not win Best Picture. Do you remember what won Best Picture? 2011? Yeah. Uh, okay, let me think. Let me think. It's another movie about movies. Is it The Artist? It is The Artist. Oh, shit. You don't like The Artist? Uh, it's okay. I, I, again, I, I think Best Pictures should have some sort of cultural relevance. I just don't know the last time people thought about The Artist. Uh, well... <laughs> That case could be made the last 10 years for the movies that the Academy Award has picked for best picture. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about who won best picture in 2022 uh, Oscar ceremony, I don't think they're going to say Coda. They're going to say, well, that's that's the year that Will Smith slapped yeah. Chris Rock. But yeah, right? that, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Hugo was was kind of a big deal. It won an Oscar for art direction, cinematography. Uh, it won for sound editing, sound mixing, and best visual effects, right? Yep. The artist won best picture. What I find interesting is Hugo had a bunch of nominations for the British Academy Film Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards, um, and in the Golden Globe Cat Awards for the category for best director, Martin Scorsese did win best director. Yeah, which usually is an indicator that they'll win the Academy Award for best director, but it he didn't. I believe it went to the guy who directed uh, the artist. Yeah, and I'll I'll come out here and say that I I actually love the artist. It would be tough for me to pick the better film between the artist and Hugo. Um, that year, I think my favorite film that year was Moneyball, probably. So oh, that that would make had, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. That's that's a lot. I mean this this is an interesting film. Has an interesting <laughs> history. I'm really curious where you land on it. So how about we take a quick break and we come back and we share our thoughts on the film. Let's do it. All right. We'll be back. It's intermission. Rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. Got a yen for hot popcorn? Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. There's delicious coffee, freshly brewed, and all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life, the feats ascribed to 4D man, $1 million in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D man.
Okay, Brad, no guest. It's just you and me. We it hasn't been yeah. man, we haven't had an episode where it's just you and me. We for haven't a while. had a date, just us in a long time. I know. Yeah. Uh how are you doing, buddy? I'm good. <laughs> Life treating you good? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I'm usually I don't know, we we text like a lot during the day, like every day. I think you and I are texting all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for us not to talk about the film or even maybe the genre we're talking about. But I think we were pretty silent on this one. So yes. I'm curious because I know Scorsese uh, is a favorite of yours. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really curious where this film lands for you. So this is how many times is this your second time viewing it or did you watch it a few times? No, I've probably seen this three or four times. Okay. I'm I'm really curious. Like, what what do you think about Hugo in terms of um, where it fits within Martin Scorsese's filmography, or uh, what you think of it in just terms of its overall artistry? Yeah. So first off, I would. This is not this is not like a slight on Hugo at all. But it, I mean, this is a top ten like Martin Scorsese film, which mm-hmm. you're like top ten. That's crazy. Uh, just because like he has a long filmography and picking out 10 is crazy. So to be in Scorsese's top 10 is probably one of the best honors you can have. And then the look and feel of this movie is nothing that it, if it wasn't the artistry and the craftsmanship and the, just the overall slickness of this film. And you could definitely tell this, whoever directed this film definitely put their love behind it. It doesn't scream. Martin Scorsese, and that's kind of why I I love this movie so much, is because it feels really different. There's really you don't think it screams. So why do you no, think that? Just like visually, and you know, there's but the, but uh, the characters aren't screaming the f word. Well, okay, like yeah, okay. So it's it's different content, but that yeah. comment like strikes me odd because if you think about the tracking shot in Goodfellas that everybody gravitates no. to, yes, yes, it, it's there's they do the train seek the, the opening train okay. sequence in this film literally does that um, in this movie. Like, no, his flourishes are all there and it for the keen eye. Yes. You're picking up on all of his things, all of his techniques that he does. But when you look at it visually, it just looks totally different. Is it the, because it's brighter than it's brighter and you know, it's, it's essentially like a once location film for 90% of it. Um, yeah. It's a train sa- uh, station. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think we know Scorsese can get performances out of children. He did it uh, with in Goodfellas. He, you know, he does it in a lot of films. So I'm not surprised that the performances in the, in the children are amazing, but like, this is a film for people who love film. Like this is a love letter to everything that the cinema has become like, these pioneers that pretty much get overlooked. Yeah, sure. Most people know about the great train robbery or they know about uh, a trip to the moon. Um, or I guess even like safety, was it safety last or whatever? Yeah. The, Her- the um, Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Harold Lloyd. Okay. Um, you know, we, we've all seen those um, even like snippets or, or whatever, which we'll get to whether or not like knowing some of the references in this movie matter or not, but just having this love letter to movies and having someone of Scorsese's craftsmanship, put it together. 
I mean, this movie could have fallen flat on its face and just been too sort of heavy handed with what it was trying to do. And like, Oh, I want to make a movie about movies, but not about like those movies, but like these weird, like French sci-fi films that were revolutionary in the early formations of, of cinema. I, I have a question for you. Uh, cause I, I think it's interesting. You're talking about the references because even Hugo hanging from the clock is mm-hmm. the, the safety last Harold Lloyd reference. Yeah. Do you think this film is more about referencing film or the history film, or is it about, I guess, Hugo and like his journey as a um, boy without a father and, and trying to find his purpose. I mean, do you, do you think it has the right balance of it or do you think it leans heavily into the film stuff? I think that stuff works in parallel. I I think there's all that stuff about the film. Yes. And it's about Hugo finding who he is becoming um, kind of his own man. um, And that works in parallel with all this other stuff. And that's where you get the craftsmanship, right? Like a lot of times, one of those storylines or, or one of those um, plot lines gets lost or becomes too dominant. And the other one feels like it's, you know, lesser mm-hmm. Hugo is the main character in this movie and he needs to be front and uh, needs to be up front. But then like George plays a huge part of this movie as well. And so that balance there is something that I don't know if many directors pull off well, Um and to be perfectly honest and, and to put it up front, like I pretty much love everything that Scorsese does. So like to me, this, this movie is almost critic proof, but even me stepping back and saying, okay, we have to talk about this subjectively on the podcast. How do I really feel about it? I mean, the care in this movie is so evident that it's almost hard to like pick it apart. Cause you're like, everything about this just feels right. Um, the automaton that they create, it's so intricate and the setting and even like, like the Sasha Baron Cohen character is such a like one-off sort of deal, but even he has a complete arc in this movie. And at the end of it, you're like, wow, I, I kind of like this guy at the very end. He becomes totally different than where he started at the beginning. So Hugo is having this effect on all these people he meets. Um, And then you get to Ben Kingsley and you're like, holy shit, this performance (laughs) is one of the greatest things I have ever seen in my entire life. There are two scenes in this movie where characters cry and I almost was brought to tears myself. It was so powerful, so moving. And one of them is with Hugo and one of them is with George. And I almost lost it and it was just pulling at me. And I think it is criminal that this movie is this underseen. I've, I've talked to people before and they're like, I don't even know what, what Hugo is. And I don't know if the name, the name's a little weird, you know, Hugo is such a, you know, is it a Hugo Chavez movie? You know, whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't do it any favors. And it, it makes me sad um, that something like this, because I think if someone sees something 
this well done and it's alluding to all these other films um that maybe they get a curiosity and start going back in and looking at kind of the foundations of where we are now i think it's important to know um about about film now does it make watching the departed any better because (laughs) i know about fairyland no it doesn't but it's kind of cool to know about things you know like does knowing James Naismith make you love basketball even more? No, but it doesn't hurt. But did and this so, did this film get you, uh, I guess, excited about going back to like look at George? Absolutely. Okay. I wa- the as soon as this was over, I watched a trip to the moon. Okay. So, and, and I also have to admit, my great grandfather was a watchmaker. So, any seeing this stuff, like it, it just really it touches me on the, on the inside. So, um, it's got everything I, 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 I love a, a director just kidding it out of the park, a film about films, uh, performances that are just insane. Like I have, I have kind of boiled down my film enjoyment into like, I have to have something that just is pretty much like, give me the apex of something in a film and I'm going to like it performances in this are far like they're just so good there's not a bad character in this movie wayne winstone ray winstone comes in and is in not for long and kills it jude law kills it the kid actors are just amazing and then ben kingsley it just top to bottom i i think this is something that i hope one day when my kids can appreciate a, a longer movie that's a, a little bit slower, this is something that I can be like, look at this. This is something that you can watch that's by one of my favorite directors because after this, there's not much, there's not much. So, okay, yeah, uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad you do. I mean, it's it, to me when you talk about Martin Scorsese, I'm with you. I don't I don't know why this film doesn't come up more in conversations. It's different, right? It's a kid's film. Is it? By Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing about it that wouldn't be a kid's film. Ah. No, it's like it's deep and it's like got way more than your kid's film usually has going for it. But yeah, it's it's a family film. I don't know. When I when I think about family, kids films, etc., there are elements of it uh with the Sasha Barrett Cohen character these little chase sequences that they do that uh, have that kid film element but i feel like i this may be a terrible thing to say but i feel like the minute you call something a kid's film you've dumbed it down a little bit and i actually think Mm -hmm. this is one of one of the smartest i i don't know intelligent films about life that you can come across Mm -hmm. which I don't know. I mean, as a, as a kid, like if you were to take a kid to this, what kid is going to be interested in Hugo? Like I can totally understand from a marketing perspective, why this may have bombed a little bit is because if you're taking little 10 year old Johnny to this and there's maybe 15 minutes of not even slapstick, but I'll call it maybe the Harold Lloyd comedy to it specifically Mm -hmm. with the inspector, right? The Sasha Baron Cohen character. Yeah, he's a great character, and you're right; he has a story arc. But I'm, I'm just wondering. Like, I'm, I'm sure this was marketed as a kids' film. I mean, I saw it because it was Martin Scorsese, 
and it was his first 3D film. Uh, but I mean, would would this really go over as a kids' film? I don't know. I just feel like it. Did Max watch it? No, no, because I, I couldn't remember just how far it went. Um, but he could definitely watch this. Now, would he? I, I don't think he would. Um, I don't know if it would keep his interest that long. But yeah, that that's the thing is that I I feel like this doesn't have enough things. Not that I'm calling kids stupid. It's just <laughs> there's not enough flash in this yeah. from a kid's perspective. Now, I think there's tons of flash from a film lover uh, perspective, but not a kid's mm-hmm. perspective. Now, do you think like it's not a prerequisite? Again, we're, you were asking me earlier, like prerequisite to know all these references. Like it, it, it stands oh, alone. No. Yeah, I, I think if anything, it'll get you fascinated about those films to where you you would go out and say, oh, I, I want to see these, you know, Georges Melies films. I mean, I, I think he did one, The Haunted Castle or something, which I think that's the title of it. I'd, I'd seen it years ago, but what, the first time I saw Hugo, I had only seen a few of his, but it made me go back and try and watch as many as I could. Um, so I, I don't think it's a prerequisite for you to understand it. There's an entire segment where they kind of go through the history of film. They talk about um, sort of the the first moving images and yeah. uh, just just fun movie facts about, oh, he's filming things in a glass house to let the natural light come in. And I think that stuff is really interesting. But if you knew nothing about the historical characters that it's referencing, it might if if you're a curious person, it might intrigue you to go search that stuff out. Yeah, I mean. It- those old films are, are fascinating to look at. Cause I mean, what they were putting on film with what they had is, is, is quite the feat. And, and I think they do a really good job in this, in this film of kind of conveying all that. Like you said, that glass house stuff is, is really. Or, or the really fact cool. that his films were in color because they had to, ha- you know, go back they and hand painted, painted these, yeah. uh, which is all interesting little tidbits about cinema history that again, I don't think you, it, it may actually be better that you don't know that stuff and you go to watch this because that, uh, I guess, again, gives you this, um, I don't know, <laughs> it, it, it's just a constant enjoyment of learning new things when it comes to like the history of cinema. Yeah. So uh, most, I don't know how you are. Most of the time when I, when I watch the films that we're going to talk about, I will sit there in some fashion and we'll pause or take a note or something happens. I'm like, Oh, I want to talk about that scene, et cetera. There, there was no way that I could ever watch this film and take notes during it. I really get lost in it there. I mean, to be quite honest, even after I watched it, I couldn't write notes down or even get my thoughts together for about a day or two because I just get lost in it. And there, there's a couple of reasons why I think, uh, Martin Scorsese's artistry is on display here, but also his deep love of cinema, which we talked mm-hmm. about. And this is a beautiful film. I mean, beautiful. And I, I don't use that word lightly. I think James Cameron said this is the one of the greatest looking films he's ever seen. Yeah. On, that even beats his films that he's done. Like I would agree. 3D and everything. And I think it has a beautiful message about purpose and even serendipity, um, which you you know, we talked about Tomorrowland and messaging within that from a social purpose. I love films that have this message, be it social commentary or human condition. This one has it, but it's done, 
I think so well and so perfectly and it fits within the story. It's, it's an example. Whereas Tomorrowland I think is very clunky in terms of its messaging and its story. Well, yeah, it's also like so handy handed. It's like flirting with Louis CK. Like it's like, yeah, but I I think this one's kind of heavy handed too, but it's organically uh, woven in within the story itself. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. I mean, there's this exchange between Hugo and Isabel while they're in the clock tower looking out at the street of Paris in the evening and Hugo's describing machines and every machine has the exact amount of parts and each part has a purpose mm-hmm. and a machine has no unnecessary parts. And because of his understanding of that, he views the world as one big machine and himself as a part of that machine. So he has purpose and he tells Isabel that she has purpose too and is meant to be in the world. And to me, that's so heavy handed, but it's a great example. I mean, I, I don't think if you want to talk about serendipity, we didn't plan to kind of talk about Hugo after Tomorrowland in the sense of, well, let's take two films that have some very heavy handed messaging and see how they handle it. I mean, we planned to talk Hugo after Tomorrowland, but it was just from a scheduling perspective. Yep. But to sit there and kind of come off of Tomorrowland, which has heavy-handed messaging, going to another movie that has heavy-handed messaging, and kind of go, okay, look how Brad Bird handles it versus Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And you it's go, night and day. Yeah, it is night and day. So, um, and and that sequence just fits perfectly within the story. It its messaging comes through loud and clear. It makes you even tear up a little bit because um, it's speaking to you in such a way that it's very personable. And and I'm, I'm sure that's what Brad Bird was trying to talk about. Whereas, you know, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of going, okay, dude, I, I get your message, but I also see from your story and your plot, there's a little bit of fascism there. You know, I don't yeah. think that's intended, but it could be interpreted. And, and that message gets a little muddied because the story doesn't do service to it where the story does just the perfect service to what the messaging is. And that is true artistry. Um, the other thing, uh, that this movie does for me is I'm so I, I grew up in leg braces, so I've mm-hmm. heard this disease. So for, I, I don't think we've ever talked about this on air, but, um, the, the, you know, it was for a big chunk of my childhood uh, to the point where I think it was around seventh, eighth grade or something. It's like, well, you don't have to wear these anymore because your hip's just not going to your right hip isn't is, isn't going to be cured. And at some point, you're not going to be walking. And I'm like, oh, OK, um, but it was basically a, a, a steel bar that was between my knees and it was um basically these things that ran up my thighs all the way to my lower back with another steel bar in my back. So when I walked it, I waddled and I had crutches. And anytime I see a film with somebody who has a leg brace or it just gets to me, right? Because mm-hmm. I live yeah, that for my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let me tell you how good Sasha Barrett Cohen is as an actor. And again, I know um, looking at it from a viewer, having my experiences and maybe fine tuning into it. I always get a little emotional. I mean, say what you will about Forrest Gump, that whole leg bracing, it gets to me, even something, um, uh, what, what was the one that, uh, Taron Edgerton was in, uh, Eddie, the Eagle or something like that. Yeah. Eddie, the Eagle. Yeah. That, that got to me big time too. 
but this one, there, there's a sequence where Sasha Barrett Cohen is trying. I think I know what you're going to say. Is is trying to approach um, mm-hmm. the girl of his dreams, Emily, right? Which makes total sense. And he he's walking towards her, and his leg brace makes a noise. It squeaks. Yep. It squeaks, and he becomes incredibly self conscious, and it's very subtle, uh, and it's very accurate, and you get wrapped up in this world that he's feeling. And you start to feel normal. I mean, he conveys that in his uh, face and his expressions until the brace kind of his leg brace reminds him that he's different and he's not a whole person. And his expression nails that. I can't tell you how many times I felt that as a kid. Yeah. Uh, Even I, I remember specifically wanting to talk to a girl in fifth grade and walking up to her. And next thing you know, my my little bars between my legs are squeaking and she turns to look at me. And I get this look of disgust uh, and you just walk away from it. And that sequence where Sasha Baron Cohen does it. Boy, God, you're going (laughs) to get me here. Well, no, I mean, it's, hey, dude, uh, wouldn't wouldn't trade any of that time for anything. That's who you are today. It it is. Exactly. But what's amazing is he, he nails it. He totally nails it. And he manages to bring this tenderness and intimacy to this character and, and humor, that whole, uh, I, I don't even know if you call it a subplot, but he's talking to the police officer and the police officer's wife has left and she's pregnant and uh, he hands Sasha Barracone a picture and he goes, uh, are you sure you want her back? <laughs> so, <laughs> but for him to transition from- Well, those, then he asked her, like, what was the last time they had relations? Yeah. And, and he goes, yeah, you're definitely the father. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. But to me, he steals every scene that he's in because he goes back and forth from intimidation to intimacy to humor, and he does it so effortlessly and as good as... Well, then as- there's the, the intense side of him as well. Yeah, it is. Like when he grabs kids, and and not, not that when you were in leg braces, you you know fought against the world, but you kind of sympathize with the guy. You're like, look, you were, I guess... He's yeah. an orphan. He he goes through this whole thing of like, yeah. hey, you're going to go into an orphan too. You're going to learn what I learned. And then he had he has this tragedy that happens in the war. War, yep. Uh, I mean, he's a really broken character. And what's amazing about Scorsese is he takes a side character and gives it an, a, this entire story arc. But I'll say this. Sasha Baron Cohen sells that even more than the screenplay. I, mm-hmm. I think if it had been anybody else, it would have been an interesting little sidebar. Yeah. But if if you were to tell me, like, who is the best actor out of this, I would say it's a tie between Ben Kingsley and Sasha Baron Cohen. And that is the craziest thing. Okay. I, I don't know if I'll go that far. I'm He's going very that far. I'm, I'm going to say Sasha Baron Cohen gives Ben Kingsley a run for his money. Mm, okay. That that is a Troy by state uh, statement by Troy. Go ahead. I'm I'm the one that uh, takes the high the hyperbole, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> and runs with it. Mister Hyperbolic over here, yes, yeah. Sure. But no, I mean, it's, as good as Ben Kingsley is, just think about that journey you go on with that station inspector, and all the things that you learn about him, and how well he goes back and forth to it, and again the the tenderness to um, him being sort of the scary villain with his his Doberman, 
uh, just all the way to these comedic elements and beats. He's fantastic. Well, he has a line. I didn't write it down, but he kind of is explaining like, oh, you know, I was wounded in the war or something like that. And, and she, he's talking to the woman and then she's like, it, she's know, not like <laughs> Brad, it's, what? it's not a woman. It's Emily. It's yeah. Emily. Sorry. Okay. The perfect woman, right? The perfect yes. woman. It's the perfect girl. It's perfect Emily girl, yes. Yeah. But she's, he's talking to Emily and just her sympathizing with him. And in those moments they have together at the end, it all pays off. And um, even like the new leg brace that he gets from Hugo, it's like this new improved and it doesn't squeak and all that stuff. And it, his arc is something that I did not see coming originally when I, and I saw this and it's like all these people kind of fit together and make everything work. You know, it's like, Yes, you know, like a watch, all these gears and stuff turning and all the characters in this turning together, making everything go, all that all that works. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, his, as many times as I've seen this, I think that's the character I pay more and more attention to between him and Ben Kingsley's character. I mean, Hugo brings it all together and I, I love all these little moments. I mean, the, the, the first, what, I don't know, five, 10 minutes is about 10 minutes before you get the title card mm-hmm. feels you get late, late, late title card in this movie. Which yeah. I like. And, and that whole sequence just is cinematic gold in my opinion. I mean, there is a reason why this one won an Academy award for best cinematography. The film is breathtaking. The camera shots are brilliant. It really, there, there are chunks of this film that become a silent film and you get this amazing cinematography coupled with this, uh, j- these just amazing performances. And not only does the film give you, I-, I don't know, exposition about the history of film, but it's showing you the power of the early stages of film and how the moving images can tell a story and how it can show you something versus tell you something. Yeah. And, and it also can show you like, at the beginning, like people were afraid of, of the moving pictures and yeah. they, they were very uh, astute to bring up the fact that there was the, the very first sort of movie quote unquote was the, the train coming towards the camera and people freaking out at that. And then by the end of it, you can see like, Oh, people were, were adapting to the medium to where they could go to the moon and they could go to fairyland and they could go rob a train and all this stuff. And just, how people can adapt to those, the differences from where we were to where we were going. Um, it's very interesting to like put that in there and to show God, people were afraid of just a train coming towards them. And then by the end of it, here we are in all these different places. Um, well, I, I, you know, what's, what's funny is I think Hugo does something that's kind of cool is it, it really speaks to the importance of film. Mm-hmm. I mean, say what you will about, half of the films that we like, like Miami connection. I mean, you can't sit there and say Miami connection just changed people's lives. I, I, I just don't think it did. However, it as a film sort of makes you escape the normal world. And as a collective, as an audience takes you to a place where you can find this enjoyment out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Hugo really highlights that. So as a film, I think it does that with you being involved in the story, 
but in terms of it addressing what film can do and sort of it being, you know, film is the factory of dreams. It really yes. highlights that element that all of the ninja films that you and I like, I, I mean, it's, th- that's the great thing about movies. It, it collectively brings you together. So, yeah. Also, I was thinking about it when, when watching it this time, I was like, this movie is pandering to the Academy so much. Like I've never watched a movie that was more like, we want to be nominated for 11 Academy Awards because we <laughs> love movies. And, and rightfully it was, and it should have been, but, but so is the could, artist. Yeah. You could see like they are, it was Scorsese out to pander to the Academy. No, but the end product is very like, this is a film for your stuffy white guy uh, who loves oh. movies. So. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I kid a little bit, but it, it is very like pandering to that crowd. Okay. Maybe, maybe, but I, I, I think you're right. Now, that, that's like, I, I am not taking away any of the credit of this film, but it's very, there's no wonder that it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards because it's very of that. Ilk. It is it is very Oscar Beatty, but mm-hmm. I will say, uh, I'll give you this in hindsight, Hugo is a better film than the artist because I think it is trying to talk to that human condition a little bit more, Mm -hmm. you know, say what you will about movie guide and it's Christian themes. I I don't know if it's necessarily a Christian theme, but it is talking about purpose. I mean, you could say this film is very Buddhist in nature. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's probably more Buddhist than Christian, but uh, I tell them that. Yeah. I think, I think it has this universal dialogue about purpose in the human condition that the artist doesn't tackle. And so if, if you were to kind of go back and say, well, if we were going to do a do over the Academy Awards. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I like Moneyball. Hugo's a better film than Moneyball. Uh, I, th- I think Hugo's a better film than the artist. And, and in hindsight, this probably should have won. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine that if Scorsese would have won for Hugo? Like, doesn't win for Raging Bull, doesn't win for Goodfellas, finally wins for The Departed, doesn't win for Wolf of Wall Street, then again wins for Hugo. That would have been something, man. Well, and as much as I love The Departed, I think this is a better film than The Departed. Mm, yeah, it's up there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I would listen to that argument for sure. Yeah. I just, I, I think what happens with Scorsese is people get so accustomed to the darkness Mm-hmm. Uh, that he has told in that story, in, in the stories like Raging Bull, et cetera. And, and don't get me wrong, he's he's a mastercraft at talking, at, at just kind of living in that part of, of the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. But take a step back and think about it from actual storytelling and actual directing. I think Hugo puts a lot of that stuff to shame. That's why it fits within my top three, because, his, because you're right. I mean, Hey, any of the top 10 Martin Scorsese films is infinitely better than just majority of films that are out there. Yeah. But I think if you take a step his back, tenth, and, his 10th best film is probably 95% of director's best film. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think that's, that's fair. But if you take a step back and actually look at Hugo and weigh it against the technical merits, the storytelling, the messaging, the character development, what, what is going on in the narrative? I think, I think it's even you know, again, it's better than what a lot of people would consider Scorsese's best stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than Taxi Driver. So, 
Ooh, but wow. that, that's just me. Because again, yeah. I, I like Raging Bull Goodfellas more than Taxi Driver, and then I would put Hugo above that one. Okay. So, okay. Um, what what else? I mean, what else did you want to highlight on this one? I there aren't many films that we review and discuss that I'm like, if you haven't seen it, literally stop what you're doing right now and watch it, and it'll be worth it because. Again, if this painters to the Academy, there's also painters to people who listen to movie podcasts, right? Like yeah, yeah. it's because they're, they appreciate film on a different level enough to listen to two guys talk for two hours about film. Like if you're listening to this, this movie is for you. It is made for you. Um, and then if, if you get curious on the films that references, like go ahead and, and jump on that ship as well. Um, yeah, man, I it's such a delight seeing this movie again because it had been a little while and it had probably been five or six years um, since the last time I saw it. And and when I turned it on this time, it was just such a delight and it flew by and I immediately was wanting to see Ben Kingsley at the end and get his moment when he gets that ovation at the end. Again, there's these just moments that are just so powerful and Kingsley sells it and oh, oh I tear I tear up like several times during this yeah. film. I mean it it gets to me. But I, I agree with you 100 I think it's crazy because I remember of you know, this is coming out when 3D films are playing pretty heavy in the cinemas. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the best 3D films I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. Scorsese knows how to use that technology. It's fantastic, especially the scenes in that clock tower. Yeah. I, I had wish I was watching it on 3D again, but more importantly, it's one of the few films that I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this. I'm like, why? I mean, on the East coast, we've got three theaters that, that play older films on the big screen. So we've got the AFI, um, the Senator, and then we also have, um, the parkway and, and they're known for going back and they'll show Goodfellas and stuff like that. But I'm sitting there going, why are they not showing Hugo? Because I fell in love with this movie, seeing it on the big screen. I, I think it's great if you can see it on a home projector, 75, 85 inch screen. I think it would be a travesty if you had to watch this on like a small 20 inch tube oh, or yeah. something like that. But I, I don't, I mean, I would love for this thing to get like another theatrical run in 3d because I, I think it's that good. Yeah. Unfortunately I only saw it once in the 3d. Um, and I kind of have forgotten a lot of the aspects of the 3d, but yeah, I mean, I'm kind of surprised like someone like Criterion hasn't picked this up either yeah, for like their 4K point. release because I would love to see this in like the highest of revolutions because, again, I think that would really make it pop as well. Um, no, that's God. a good point. Cri- Criterion needs to get on this one for a 4K release because it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to see all the special features that they probably captured behind the scenes too. I, I would love Scorsese just to sit down and do like a history of film as it relates to Hugo and just yeah. do a segment on that. Yeah, that would, Oh, that'd be worth the price of admission for real. No, I agree. Uh, well, let's, let's get to the question then. So I'm going to ask you real quick. We just got done showing a lot of love to 2011's Hugo. So, but you know, we're, we're men of tradition. So we got to ask the question yeah. is uh Hugo a bomb. It is not it. We are 126 episodes in, and this is, one of the best films we've done in the time frame. So yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. It's not a bomb. Honestly, this is the film I didn't expect from Scorsese when it came out. 
Uh, I absolutely fall in love with it every time I see it. The film is the best example of blending childlike fantasy with adult yearning. And I think that's really hard. If you were to take those two kind of um, tones and put them in the same film, I don't think it, I don't think it can be done unless it's somebody like Martin Scorsese does it. Uh, I honestly didn't know Scorsese had this kind of film in him, to be quite honest. And if you ever thought Scorsese's best films were about the grime and violence of the human condition, this movie will prove to you that like his tenderness and his his intimate and positive sides can can reach those same heights as something like Goodfellas, Raging Bull, or, or Taxi Driver. Yep. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I got a little bit of listener feedback, Brad. You want to hear it? Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we actually had a busy week. So, but there was, there was one thing that popped out that I thought was kind of interesting. I wanted to share it with you because it came with a question and it's from our good friend and listener. Ben says, just wanted to shout out to you guys that I've been loving the podcast. Admittedly, October is my favorite month to listen to podcasts and your picks were some of the best around. I am sure doing a weekly show is difficult. So I thought it would be appropriate to express my gratitude for your hard work. Seriously, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the November films. Wow. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. It says, anyway, my question is, is there a film that surprises you that wasn't a bomb? Maybe you saw the trailer and immediately thought, yeah, that's going to bomb. Thanks, guys. Oh, I have my answer right away. Go ahead. Go, Brad. Alice in Wonderland. Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah? Yeah. I saw that preview. I was like, there's no way. This dumbass Johnny Depp performance is going to do anything. <laughs> and it made a billion dollars. <laughs> so uh, I was wrong. Wow. But I, when I saw that, I was like, there's no, no one is going to, no one in their right mind is going to see that movie. Alice in Wonderland is a great uh, Walt Disney cartoon. Why do we need this? Yeah. I was wrong. I, I was wrong. <laughs> Can we throw all the Transformer sequels in there? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what the thing that shocked me still, I can't get over was, uh, when we sat down money months ago to go through and say, Hey, we want to do uh horror sequels that bombed and we couldn't, it was like hard to find. And the mm-hmm. series that blew me away was pretty much all the Friday the 13th movies made money, mm-hmm. which shocked me. But there's one film from my childhood that for whatever reason, I had thought had totally bombed. And I would say childhood is probably my teenage years. So um, because I grew up in leg braces, obviously I gravitated, not obviously, I guess, but I loved martial arts films, loved the ninja films. Specifically, I loved black exploitation films. And one of my favorite actors of all time is Jim Kelly. I I love Jim Kelly. Black Belt Jones is one of my favorite movies of all time. And... When I got to see you meet Jim Kelly, I thought it was like, oh, it was, it was a special moment. It was amazing. Cause I, I told him all about growing up in leg braces. And I mean, we spent almost, God, it was it felt, it was about an hour together. We were just talking. <laughs> um, but in the eighties there, there was a little bit of a resurgence of it. And there was a film that I was so excited to see. And when I saw the trailer and I remember being in the audience when the trailer came out and I just felt the collective eye roll around me. And I felt like I was the only one excited to see it. And it was 1988's Action Jackson, Action Jackson with Carl mm-hmm. Weathers. All right. Yep. So I, I thought this film was made for me because those were the films that I was always asking to see from the 70s. That's why, you know, I liked Jim Kelly, Pam Greer, um, all of that stuff. Right. So 
and and what's funny is in Wichita, Kansas, none of my friends were excited for this. And I, I couldn't get a lot of people to go except maybe Kevin. Um, and I was counting down the days to see it. And I assumed all these years it bombed because when I would talk to just the normal average moviegoer and, and even when I met my wife, I'm like, Hey, you want to watch action Jackson? She's like, what the hell's that? It's got vanity. <laughs> yeah. Um, Craig T. Nelson, right? Craig T. Nelson. But I was surprised that that, and I just, again, assumed it bombed. But when we were putting the list together, I'm like, Oh, we're going to talk about action Jackson. And I go to look at it, and it had a seven million dollar budget. And it made twenty million dollars. It was, it actually was a pretty big hit. It's sixty five million dollars, my friend. Uh, no, it made twenty million um, oh. for its for its Original, run. Yes. But yeah, the uh, the thing about it though was there was supposed to be sequels to it. I'd found this out years later. There were supposed to be sequels to it, but because the rights got sold to another company, it pretty much kiboshed Carl Weathers' contract and mm. the potential for Action Jackson too, which broke my heart. Broke my Sergeant heart. Jericho Jackson. Yeah. But that was a film that for the longest time, because even in college, I would show people this film and they're like, I've never heard of this before. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like one of my favorite 80s films. But it's this great homage to to everything like Slaughter and um, you know, I, I don't know, Three the Hard Way. I just I, I love those films and I thought it was uh it, it was just one of those that I always thought it bombed and, and it didn't. So there you go. Yeah. Well, Brad, if anybody wants to send us their thoughts on, you know, are they going to watch the Academy Awards coming up in 2023? What do they think about that? Uh, depending on the depending on the nominees, I, I, I will probably watch some of it, but okay. I won't watch all of it. Well, yeah, if, if, if somebody wants to write in and tell us their thoughts on Hugo um, or any of the topics we talked about tonight, how do they get hold of us? Yeah, that is not a bomb pot at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram. Twitter question mark. It's Twitter's a shit show now. And it's uh, and Facebook. And We're on there. you can go to our, our website, not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button as well. Yes. We love all the feedback. Thank you for everybody participating through the week. Um, we we're just, we'll get a couple of social media posts out there. That's all the time we got. We, yeah, we're busy. And, man. And Twitter just become Elon Musk. Jesus Christ. Care. I, Twitter's it's who cares. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do want to say one thing before you kind of list out all the other podcasts that people should listen to. We got word that one of our favorite podcasts, the Iron Sequel, is uh, calling it quits. They're drawing the curtain down. James um, is going on to bigger, better things. And I just want to give a quick shout out for folks. You need to go back um, and listen to those episodes. The Iron Sequel is a lot of fun. We were on there to do a show with James, and I think we talked about the Chronicles of Riddick, which was a blast. But yeah, it was, it, it was fun. It was a fun discussion. It was a lot of fun. But James is a great guy. He put out some great content. Um, you should, if you've heard his podcast, if you heard any of his shows, you should get on social media, send him a quick message, and um, you know, wish him the best of luck. But I got to tell you, Brad, I'm, I'm sad to see that show go because I loved the films that James picked. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, he's one of the good ones and he'll be missed. But we told him that he's always got an open invite on our show. And he said that he's going to come back at some point. So, yeah. Yes, um, we're bringing James back. So don't worry about that. Yeah. So other shows. Uh, we got Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Watch Skip Plus, which Troy, I will be on this week. Oh, nice. Watch Skip Plus. Are we you, are going to be talking about 
All Quiet on the Western Front, the Ooh. Netflix uh, 2022 film. I can't wait for that. I really can't. I, okay. I'm not going to spoil anything here, but listen to that show because I have some things to say. I can't uh, wait. The, the VHS Files, Night Living Podcast, the Backlook Cinema Podcast, and the Mixtape Podcast. Check all those people out. Let them know that we sent you. And yeah, podcasters yeah, I, are a dime a dozen. So as much help as you can get, uh, it's always nice. Yeah, we'll we'll be showing up on a couple of different shows too. I know you're doing Watch Get Plus. We're trying to put something together for the Backlook Cinema. I think VHS Files podcast. We're trying we to finally do got that scheduled. So yes. yeah, we'll we'll be elsewhere. If uh, if you could do us a favor though, for this one. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, share the links. Share the episodes. More than anything, I, I think what Brad and I have always kind of talked about is we wanted to build a community versus an audience. So we have amazing listeners like Ben who every once in a while send us a great question that gives us a little bit of uh, time to kind of talk about a topic. Uh, we would love to hear from you. So if you get any, I don't know, couple of minutes in your day, some free time that you can send in and share the thoughts about the films that we're talking about, or even ask us a question that might be movie related or even personal. I mean, Brad and I are open books. We'll tell you anything, send it in, <laughs> but we're really proud of um, my social security number is no, 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 don't oh, do sorry. that. Um, but no, we're, we're super proud of, I think the community that we've built over absolutely yes. plus episodes. They're very engaging. Please share the podcast. Please leave reviews. That's how I think it gets out there um, for other people. And Brad, what are we talking about next? Oh, boy. Uh, we were talking about 2021's, I guess, bio biopic, uh, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Wow. I didn't expect that one. Yeah. This yeah. was the movie, I think, that kicked off the idea of going back and looking at that Oscar movie. Yeah, because... So Jessica Chastain won Best Actress for uh, this performance. And when I heard that, I was like, look, I know pretty much every movie that comes to the theater. And when, when I heard that she won for this, I was like, I have no idea. Obviously, I know what it's about because it's about Tammy Faye. And then I was like, Andrew Garfield's in this movie? What? Is so it, Is it going to be a first time watch for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. I, me too. I haven't even seen the trailer for this. So I'm just going to go in as cold as can be. Uh, I believe it's Michael Showalter is the director. So, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Weird. We <laughs> we're gonna talk about a film, and I'm sure we're gonna talk about the uh, people that the film mm -hmm. are based on. Yeah. Oh boy. I, I like how we sandwiched Hugo with you know Eyes of Tammy Faye against uh, the Wizard of Oz and then the Shawshank Redemption. So this is the one. I mm, this is the one that was like, huh, this is weird. Genesis for this idea, but this was the one that was like, whoa, what are we doing? Uh, I can't, Went to Academy Awards, though, so. I can't wait. I'm a big Jessica Chastain fan, though, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm curious. And Andrew Garfield. I'm kind of excited about that, too. Yeah. Okay. Jessica Chastain is not Bryce Dallas Howard, so. Uh, <laughs> it's, man, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be, I can't wait to hear her thoughts. So we have to, we have to agree we don't text about this or anything. We just, we kind of come in guns a blazing with our ideas on this one. For sure. Okay, cool. Uh, anything else? Is that, is that all the uh, regular stuff? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I don't know if you downloaded this and are listening in the morning, afternoon, or evening. Thanks for listening. 
please check out next week's film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It, it should be an interesting discussion. I'm assuming the movie's good. It won an Academy Award, a couple of them. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll find out. We'll come back and report back. And if you're playing along, you can agree or disagree with us, right? That's how it works. Okay, so uh, we'll check you then. See you later. Don't lose your head. <laughs>